Pray with me, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. That when we were lost in our sin, you reached down and rescued us. And through faith in Jesus, allowed us to be in a relationship with you. Father, I pray that we would never take that for granted, but that we would live in light of what you've done for us. As the Apostle Paul says in the book of Romans, what makes sense as an act of worship is to surrender ourselves completely to you. But this morning, as we spend some time in your word, I pray that you would encourage us. Just minister to our hearts through the work of your Holy Spirit. Draw us closer to yourself. Because God, we recognize our need for you today. Pray that you'd meet us where we are. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You guys can grab a seat. It is good to see everybody today. You know, I was thinking about this as we were singing just a second ago. I don't know how you feel um, about just the busyness of the season right now. I don't know what your calendars are like and things like that. But just like from a ministry perspective, like it's crazy this year. I don't know, I actually do know why Easter moves around so much, but I don't understand why Easter moves around so much. Um, but the fact that it was so late this year, in the middle of April, it's like we have all this preparation that we have to do as a staff, you know, and, and, and ministry leaders and all that kind of stuff, you know, to get ready for Easter. And there's so much to do. And then we finally get stuff put away. We wipe the sweat off of our brow. It's like, okay, we can breathe a little bit, only to realize this year that Mother's Day is like in two weeks. And so it's like, well, man, now we got to do all that stuff. And then after Mother's Day, only about two weeks later, maybe three weeks, um, is Serve Sunday. So we have a fifth Sunday in May that we have to do all that preparation for as well. So I kind of say these things like now to just like, hey, make sure that this is on your radar screen too. So Mother's Day in a couple of weeks, hopefully you've seen our announcements um, about nominating a mom. We want to bless uh, single moms um, in our community. And so if you know people, and I'm, maybe Melissa will talk about that at the end of the service today. And then the other thing is to keep in mind that Serve Sunday is coming um, uh, 30th, maybe, or 31st. I forget. It's the, the, you know, the 29th. See, it's at, at the end. The one at the end. Um, that's when we do that. So um, we'll be talking about those projects and things like that. But just kind of put that on your radar, get that on your calendar. So for those of you that are guests with us, I mean, we're really glad that you're here. And so what we do every time there's a fifth Sunday in the month, so it happens about four times a year, we do not have services, but we go out to serve. Um, and so over the next couple of weeks, we'll be talking about that. Um, and <clears throat> getting you signed up for projects and all that kind of stuff. So for those of you that are guests with us, though, we're excited that you are here with us this morning, and we would love to connect with you, um, find out who you are, potentially how we could minister to you and your family. And so the easiest way to do that is to text the word WELCOME to 817-755-1668. So if you don't get that from the um, slide on the screen behind me, there is a, a sticker somewhere in front of you nearby. Uh, it's got that same number on there. We're not going to do anything weird. It's just um, our way of finding out who you are. You're going to receive a digital connection card from us. We'd love for you to fill that out. But hey, if you have any questions about the church want to know how to get connected, things that we offer, all of that kind of stuff. I, at the end of the service this morning, I will go out to our uh, Connect wall, um, and I'll kind of hang out there. Would love to answer any questions, love to meet you. Um, we've got some information that we can give you and things like that, so would love to see you there. So that's kind of all the introductory stuff before we get into the message. So here's the awkward transition. I'm not going to pray as a transition this morning. So we're just, I'm just going to announce, we are now into the message portion of my time on the stage. So the underdog story is a plot that shows up often 
in movies. And if those of you that know me, you, you know that I'm a huge sports fan. And so anytime there, there is a movie released about sports, it's likely that I'm going to make it a priority to watch that. And I was thinking about this, like, I don't know, maybe 90%, probably more than 90% of all movies that are involve sports, like that's the main theme of that movie, is the underdog story. I don't know anybody that makes movies about the favored team winning the championship, right? There's no drama in that. There's no story in that. We want to see David defeat Goliath. We want to see the little guy or the unexpected person overcome the obstacles in order to win the championship. And so just to to prove to you that this shows up all the time, I'm going to give you some examples of underdog stories. Now, I'm going to give you this uh, caveat this, the movies that I mentioned are in no way an endorsement of anything in the movie. So you choose if you want to watch these movies or not. And since it is baseball season, most of the references I'm going to give you up front are baseball movies. Um, but one of the, the favorite ones as a kid, and this is just going to be really bad, I'm going to say it anyway, like, but one of my favorite ones growing up was the Bad News Bears, like the original one, not the one that came out, you know, a few years ago, like the original Bad News Bears. There's a story of a ragtag group of kids that were not good enough to play on any of the other teams in their league, and so they decided to form their own team. And at the beginning of the movie, like the title says, they were bad. Um, But somehow, Mr. Wanamaker starts to get them turned around, and then they make it all the way to the championship. But my favorite one, though, is the second Bad News Bears movie called Bad News Bears Breaking Training, where they, as like you know, they're 12, 13-year-old boys, drive themselves from California to Houston to play the big bad team from Texas in the Astrodome. And they are able to beat this, you know, Texan team where, you know, everybody's like a foot taller than all the other kids on the California team and stuff like that. So the bad news bears. The movie Major League about the Cleveland Indians who were just absolutely terrible. They were so terrible, their ownership wanted them to be terrible because they wanted to move the franchise, and all of a sudden they start winning, and they make it to the championship. Rookie of the Year is the story of about, I think he's about 12 years old, Henry Rowengardner, who loves baseball. The problem is he was terrible. And so in his little league, he suffers an injury, breaks his arm, and so he gets a cast on his arm, and as his arm heals, somehow the tendons grow back too tight so that now he can throw a baseball like 150 miles an hour. He is then signed by his hometown team, the Chicago Cubs, and he leads them to the championship, right? It's the underdog story. I'll give you one that's not a reference to baseball in case you don't care at all about baseball. And I'll just, this is, again, a caveat. Like, I've only seen, like, two episodes on an airplane once. Um, but, and now I can't even remember the name of it. Ted Lasso, right? The story of the college football coach that goes and takes over a soccer team in England. And I assume he's going to turn things around. I've only seen two episodes. I don't really know what happens, but I know that that's been a really, really popular show um, over the last couple of years. But having said all that, the quintessential underdog story of all time is the story that's told in the Rocky franchise. I mean, Rocky movies are so good. Like all 14 of them 
maybe not all 14 are good. The first few are really good. Like, honestly, it's amazing to me how you can make a movie with the same characters following the same plot and the same story and get people to watch it, like people like me, to watch it over and over and over again. Some of you are around my age. We've got some younger folks in here. So if you don't know the story of the original Rocky that goes all the way back into the 70s, Rocky was a journeyman fighter, hardly able to make ends meet, but somehow he gets put on the card to fight the world heavyweight champion, Apollo Creed. And going into the fight, everybody believes that Rocky is going to get killed, like literally get killed. He almost does literally get killed in that fight against Apollo, but he lasts all 15 rounds, which nobody thought he would be able to do, and that leads into Rocky II. So Rocky II, now still the underdog, people thinking like there's no way, the reason that he was able to last so long is because Apollo took him too lightly, he's not going to do that this time, and so they go into the fight, but now the underdog, Rocky, is able to win, and he becomes the heavyweight champion of the world. Now, it's Rocky III, though, that for me as a kid growing up, this was the one. I probably saw this one first. I watched it more than any of the other ones. But what's amazing about Rocky III is that even though he was the world heavyweight champion, somehow they write the story so that Rocky is once again the underdog in the fight against Clubber Lang, who is played by Mr. T. Because it's Clubber Lang who is viewed as the unbeatable fighter. But Rocky goes into this fight. And if you've seen any of the movies, you know that the, the, the plot, it's like it's literally the same every single movie. In the training, the beginning of Rocky's training for the final fight, usually he's kind of down on himself. It's like, there's no way I'm going to win for whatever reason. It's like, why even try to do this? And something changes a little bit in his mindset. And then all of a sudden, that's when the theme song starts playing right? And you know it's on at that point, right? And so Rocky heads into the fight against Clubber Lang. And at the beginning of this fight, like he is absolutely getting destroyed, standing right in front of him, taking punch after punch after punch. Like he gets knocked down, but he gets back up again. And in fact, in between one of the rounds, he goes back to his corner and the guys are like, Rocky, what are you doing? You're getting killed. And he's like, I know what I'm doing. And and, and so he goes back out there and again, stands directly in front of Clubber, taking shot after shot, gets knocked down, but gets back up again. And then finally, he, like his whole plan the whole time was like to wear him out. And so Clubber line gets worn out, the fight turns, and then Rocky ends up winning that fight. It's an incredible underdog story. It was the boxer Mike Tyson who once famously said, everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the face. You know, I think about Rocky. Man, and I love, especially Rocky III, love Rocky III. And I think about his story, and I know it's a, a fictional story, but I could never do what Rocky did. Because at this point in my life, I think I have one goal, and that is to avoid getting punched in the face. You know what would happen if I did find myself in the unfortunate circumstance where I did get punched in the face? The next thing I'm going to do is figure out how to avoid that from ever happening again. But I wonder if you've ever felt like life has punched you in the face. Right? We all kind of go into life, and especially into adulthood, thinking, you know, we've got a plan. Here's what life is going to be like. Here's what we're going to do. And all of a sudden, life punches us right in the face. And the plan goes out the window. And we've probably all been there. 
Times we felt like life has punched us in the face, life has knocked us down. And the reason we've all been there is because sometimes life just happens. There wasn't anything we could do to anticipate it, nothing we could do to avoid it, like it just happens. And it could be the loss of a job, or maybe not getting a job that we thought we were going to get. It could be a financial stress that comes upon us for some reason. Maybe an illness that either we suffer or someone close to us suffers. You know, at times it's not just maybe something that happens to us. Sometimes it can be things that we cause as well. Maybe not something that we intentionally meant to do, but we we did something and it uh, created some relational strife. And so then we have to deal with that. And so in those moments when life punches us in the face... Like, we can begin to go through all kinds of things. It's like, how do I avoid that from ever happening again? That's certainly one response that we can have. Those of us who are followers of Christ, all of a sudden we begin to wonder, like, where is God in this? Like, why does God allow something like this to happen? In those moments, you may get angry with God and think, like, I'm finished with God. Or maybe in the midst of our guilt and shame, we may wonder, is God finished with me? And so if that's where you are today, You feel like life has punched you in the face, and you're wondering what in the world is happening. Here's what I want you to know. God's not done yet. And so we're going to be talking about um, in this new series that we're starting today, and it's going to come from the book of Philippians. So if you have a Bible with you, you can turn with me uh, to the book of Philippians. It is a letter written by the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. So if you get past the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John... And then you've got Acts, which is the story of the church. And then we get into Paul's letters. So you get past Romans, First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, past Ephesians, and then you find the book of Philippians. And this morning, as we begin, we're going to look at the first 11 verses. Kind of looking at this theme, thinking about how God is not done yet. So let me read this, and I'll kind of explain some, th- some things as we go. Like I said before, this is a letter follows the structure of kind of a standard letter. So Paul begins, he says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. And here's who it's written to, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. Now that word saints, sometimes we can read that and think these must be special people. That's not that. These are just like the, the, the people of the church. So he's writing to all the people of the church including the overseers and deacons, and that word overseer could also be translated as elders, so he's writing specifically to the leaders of the church as well. And he says, grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you, always praying with joy for all of you in my every prayer because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. I'm sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Indeed, it is right for me to think this way about all of you because I have you in my heart. And you are all partners with me in grace, both in my imprisonment and the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how deeply I miss all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And I pray this, that your love would keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment, so that you may approve the things that are superior and may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. I want you to imagine with me for just a second what life is like in the city of Philippi. 
So Philippi is a, a Greek city, historically Greek city, meaning that the culture and practices were deeply rooted in Greek culture and mythology. So if you ever had a, a class in school where they talked about Zeus and Apollo, Aphrodite, Athena, all that stuff, you may not remember anything about those other than the names. Listen, that's part of the culture of Philippi. And so as a result of that, the, the Greek culture of Philippi was very much opposed to standing against Christianity. But Paul, on one of his missionary journeys, he went to the city of Philippi and began sharing the gospel, and people came to faith in Christ, and he established this church, and incredible things happened. You can almost get a sense for it just in what we read through, the, the, the affection that Paul has for these people. I mean, he, he just loved them so much in part because of how they embraced the truth of the message of Jesus. But yet at the same time, being a Christian in the city of Philippi was hard. So there was this pressure, external pressure from the community, and now like persecution and suffering is starting to break out, so there was that struggle. In addition to that, there was uh, challenges from inside the church because other teachers, supposed teachers of Christianity were coming into the church saying, hey, to be a real Christian, you've got to do this or you have to believe that, and often these things were against the, the things that Paul had taught. And then they come to find out that they're leader, the one that had led many of them to faith in Jesus, had been arrested. And so they're beginning to wonder, like, why are all of these things happening? Is God done? Is God done with us? And I think part of, at least at the beginning of this book, the message that Paul wants to communicate to these believers in the church at Philippi was, no, God's not done yet. God's not done yet. Even those of us who maybe feel like where we are right now, life has punched us in the face. God's not done yet. The reason I know that is because God's work for you will only be complete when we reach eternity. It's, this is really verse 6 where Paul says, I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus, the, the day of Christ Jesus, meaning the day that we meet Jesus, whether it's from when we pass from this life into the next or when Jesus returns for us, that is only the time that God's work will be complete in us. God's not done yet. God still has work that he wants to do in us. So there's still work that God wants to do in us. We never get to the place where we stop growing. Now, having said that, there are a couple of things that are really important to understand. One, you never arrive. Like, we, we never get there where we can say, I'm, I'm done, I'm, I'm finished, like, I've got everything that I need. Now, for people like me who have uh, grew up with a background like I did growing up in church, you know, hearing Bible stories like nearly every day of my life, it's really easy for me to fall into the trap of thinking, well, I know everything. I've read this before, I've heard this before, so therefore I must be good. Or if you don't have a background like mine, you could look at somebody like me and think, well, if I just know the things that they know, then I'll have arrived. Then, then, then I will be mature and, and, and I won't have to worry about anything else. But we never get to the point where we stop growing. There's still work that God wants to do in us. See, what should happen 
when we are sensitive to the working of the Spirit of God in our lives, as we grow and mature in our faith, what happens, what should happen, is that instead of getting in our minds, like we get to the place where we've arrived, instead we should realize just how far we have to go. But we miss that when what we do is we begin to look around at other people and use that as a point of comparison rather than comparing ourselves to God. Our son Nathan, he's a freshman in high school. And so for the first time in his entire life, grades now matter. And he's a smart kid. He does well in school. And so we've kind of had this conversation with him. Hey, Nathan, like, it's really important now that you get, you make sure that you are in the top 10% of your class, right? That is kind of the standard that makes sure you get into state schools, opens up all kinds of different opportunities and stuff like that. So it's like, hey, Nathan, got to get inside the top 10%. There have been times where his attitude has been, okay, what's the number? Like, what sneaks me inside the top 10? Like, is it you know, whatever it is in his class, is it number 63? Because as long as I'm at 63, that's good enough. So it's not, hey, I'm going to work as hard as I can. I'm going to do the very best that I can. But it's like, how can I do the bare minimum to kind of get in? Because he's comparing himself with other people. And we do this all the time. We begin, it's really easy to fall into this trap where we begin to look out at other people and say, well, I'm not as bad as they are. I don't do the things that they do. I'm better than they are, so I must be doing really good in my faith. We compare ourselves to other people instead of comparing ourselves to a holy and perfect God, because that's the standard of measurement. It's not what other people are doing, it's who God is. Now, as we begin to compare ourselves with a holy God, here's what we find. We have a long way to go. And in fact, that seems like an impossible task. And the reality is it is an impossible task, but that's where God's grace is incredible. Because in God's grace, we are declared righteous. That's not based on the things that we do. It's based on the work of Jesus for us so that God views us as being righteous. And then through the work of the Spirit of God, he begins to sanctify us or helps us to grow. And it's the work of the Spirit that leads us in that growth until we meet Jesus. Now, we never arrive. There's always growth and maturing that needs to happen, but it's the Spirit of God who brings us along. Now, we never get there. We never arrive. But the Spirit of God, as we are sensitive to the leading of the Spirit in us, helps us to get better and better at looking more like Jesus. God's still got work he wants to do in us. And part of that is we got to understand we never arrive. Now, the other end of that spectrum is really important too. And you got to understand this, you're never too far gone. See, when we maybe cause the pain that comes into our lives, it's really easy to let guilt and shame cause us to think, and this is a lie of the enemy, to think, well, God couldn't love someone like me. God can't love someone who does the things that I have done. God can't use someone like me. But again, this is the incredible nature of God's love, that in spite of our faults and failings, he continues to pursue us with his love. And then he brings us back to himself again. You're never too far gone. God still has work that he wants to do in us. We never arrive. We're never too far gone. And so as we think about the work that God wants to do in us, here's the the question that we have to challenge ourselves with on a regular basis. Am I willing to let him in? Because that's where it gets hard. See, most of us, I think probably like me, when you get punched in the face, what you want to do is avoid that pain 
to do everything you can to avoid that kind of pain again. And so often we cover that up, we run away from it, whatever we do, we do all kinds of things so that we avoid that. But what God wants to do is reach into our hearts and bring healing. And oftentimes that's uncomfortable. But what God wants to do is take the brokenness that we've created to put the pieces back together again, to bring meaning and purpose out of the mess that we make with our lives. God's not done yet. He's still got work he wants to do in you. I'm going to go back to our text again and look at verse 5. Paul's talking about how he prays for them, remembering them with joy. And he says this, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And then he says, I am sure of this, that he who started a good work will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. And he continues to talk about in verse 7, all of you are partners with me in grace. And so the question is this partnership language that Paul, Paul is using. What is he talking about? Part of what he's talking about is the the church at Philippi had partnered with Paul in his ministry in a financial way or a physical way. They had sought to help make sure that his physical needs were met. In fact, the church had even sent somebody uh, to Rome where Paul was in jail to make sure that he was taken care of. And so they very much partnered with him in the gospel. But yet at the same time, it's more than just the things that they did. It is who they were. Because this church embraced the truth of the gospel so that their lives were changed and they were living differently as a result. And so we begin to understand when Paul's talking about this partnership in the gospel, he's really talking about two things. One, what God was doing in them. And the second thing was that what God was doing through them. And so when we think about the work that God wants to do uh, for us, there is a work that God wants to do in us. At the same time, there's also a work that God wants to do through us. Because our relationship with God, what God does in our lives is never meant to end with us. But what God wants is that what he does in us flows through us as we point other people back to Jesus. And whereas we think uh, the challenge question that we think about with what God wants to do in me is, am I willing to let him in? As we think about what God wants to do through us, the challenge question is this, am I available? Are you available? to be used by God to point others to Jesus. Often we begin to think, when we talk about sharing our faith with other people, uh, we think about something else to do, and it's like, how do I add something else to my calendar? And I don't think it's adding something else to your life. It's about taking advantage of the relationships that you already have. I've talked about this before, so those of you that have been around the table for a while, you know this. I think there are at least three spheres of relationships that we can think about that God has provided us with, that we can point people to Jesus. The first is at home. It's our families. This is moms and dads pointing their children to Jesus. This is siblings pointing their sibling to Jesus. It's an adult child pointing their maybe elderly mom or dad to Jesus. It's aunts and uncles pointing nieces and nephews to Jesus, right? These familial relationships that we have, those are relationships that we have that God wants for us. He wants to do something through us as we point those people to Jesus. Second sphere of relationships that we have is at church. So the Apostle Paul writes in a couple of different places, he talks about the church as a body. 
Many different parts all have different functions, and for the body to function correctly, all the parts need to function according to the way that they're designed. And so it's that metaphor that kind of describes the functioning of the church. And so if you would say that you are, like, the table is your church home, what that means is you have gifts and abilities that God has given you to use in the church to point people back to Jesus. And the only way that we as a church can function the way that we're meant to is if all of the parts function according to their design. And so we need you to serve. And I know, just looking around the room, many, many of you are already doing that. And so like, we appreciate that so much. Know that what you're doing is valuable. If you have questions about where you can get plugged in because you're not serving yet, we, we need you to be the church that God has called us to be. And so we'd, we'd love to talk with you after the service this morning and, and, and show you different areas where you can serve to use your gifts here to point people back to Jesus. The third relational sphere that we have, I kind of refer to it as sometimes it's a choose-your-own-adventure, but it's in your community. And so this is the place where you spend the most amount of your time. Now, for a lot of people, it's going to be at work. So God has placed you in that relational sphere with the people that you work with in order to point them to Jesus. For some, it may not be at work. Maybe it's in your neighborhood. It's those relationships that you have in your neighborhood. Or maybe it's uh, something else that you do, like if your kids are highly involved in sports, maybe it's with those families that you're spending all weekend with every single week. But God wants to do something in us, and he wants that to flow through us so that we point people back to Jesus. See, God's not done yet. Now, there's one other thing. I know God's not done yet. Paul said, he who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it at the day of Jesus Christ. And then as he continues on in this passage, there is one area that he mentions very specifically. This is an area that all of us can grow in. And that's the area of our love. Verse 9, and I pray this, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment so that you may approve the things that are superior and may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ. This is Paul's prayer for the church, that your love will keep on growing. Would you be interested to know that as Paul writes that, he is not talking about their love for God? I think it'd be really easy for us to read it that way. What he's talking about is their love for one another, their love for other people. We don't have time to do this this morning, but if I were to ask you, or maybe let's take a survey, what are the measures of spiritual growth? Like, how do we know somebody is maturing spiritually? Some of us might be tempted to think, well, it's in how much you know. Like, if you know the Bible, you know the Word of God, then that's a mark of spiritual maturity. I think knowing the Bible is really important, but that's not it. Some of us might be tempted to think, well, when you're really spiritually mature, it shows up in acts of piety, like how much time you spend with God. And again, I think spending time with God is really important. But over and over again, in the New Testament, especially true in Paul's writings, the mark of spiritual maturity, it's not in what you know, it's not in how much time you spend with God, it is in how well you love others. Now, I will tell you, You'll never be able to love others well if you don't know the Bible, because that's where God has revealed to us what it means to love others. 
We'll never be able to love well if we're not spending time with God because it's our time with God that transforms our hearts so that we can do what the Bible says we ought to do in terms of loving others. But over and over again in the New Testament, what we read is that the mark of maturity is in how we love others. And that's an area that all of us can be growing in. That's what God wants to do in us as he's transforming us. It has to flow out in terms of how we relate with other people. Now, I'm going to give you a hint about how to grow in your love for others. You will only be able to love others the way that God has called you to if you first understand just how much you have been loved by God. And so there is a sense in which for us to grow in our love for others, we have to grow in our understanding of God's love for us, how he loves us unconditionally, how we are never too far gone, that he always continues to pursue us with his love. And as we understand how we are loved, it's then that we can begin to love others. I want you to think about this for just a second. We're going to be finished. What's the story that God is writing in your life? The story that God is writing in your life is an underdog story, regardless of the circumstances. Because we who are sinners, separated from God, lost and without hope, have been welcomed into the family of God through the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf. And just that in and of itself is unexpected. No way we could ever get there. But that's the story that God is writing in us. And there are those moments in the midst of the ups and downs of the plot twists and turns in that story where we feel like life has punched us in the face. And there are times where we think, man, like maybe this is it. Maybe I'm done. Maybe God's done. Here's what I want you to know. God's not done yet. He's still got work he wants to do in you. And he wants to do work through you. And as we think about what God has for us in the future, I think we always need to think this way. And this I pray, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment so that you may approve the things that are superior and may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I, and it is, that is my prayer for us today that we would grow in our love, that we would understand the things that really matter, recognizing that people matter. And I pray that you would continue to do your work in us, transforming us so that we become more and more like Jesus. God, help us to realize we never arrive, but also at the same time, we're never too far gone. You continue to pour out your love on us. You pursue us with your love and draw us to yourself. God, continue to have your way in us so that as we understand just how much you love us, we would be able to love others. And it's in the name of our Savior Jesus that we pray. Amen. We're going to finish the service this morning by um, partaking of communion. And so um, for those of you that are followers of Jesus, we want you to participate in this time with us. It's instituted by Jesus. He told the disciples, do this often to remember me. 
with two elements, the elements of the bread that Jesus broke and passed it to his disciples and shared with them that it represents his body that was broken for us. And then the second element is the element of the cup that represents the blood of Jesus that was shed so that our sins could be forgiven. It is only because of the sacrifice of Jesus that we can have a relationship with God. And so we celebrate and remember his work for us. But remember this, his work is not done. He still wants to do a work in us, making us more like Jesus. And then he wants to take that work he's doing in us and let it flow through us to make a difference in the lives of other people. I know many of you have the elements already, and so uh, Cody's going to begin to lead us through this last song. As soon as you feel ready, partake of those elements together in remembrance of the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf.